Today we will talk about the American astronaut who played one of the key roles in the Apollo 11 lunar mission, Michael Collins. Michael Collins was born on October 31, 1930, in Rome, Italy. He was the second son of James Lawton Collins, a career U.S. Army officer, who was the U.S. military attaché there from 1928 to 1932, and Virginia C. Ney Stewart. Collins had an older brother, James Lawton Collins Jr., and two older sisters, Virginia and Agnes. For the first 17 years of his life, Collins lived in many places as the Army posted his father to different locations, Rome, Oklahoma, Governor's Island, New York, Fort Hoyle, Fort Hayes, Puerto Rico, San Antonio, Texas, and Alexandria, Virginia. He took his first plane ride in Puerto Rico aboard a Grumman Widgeon. The pilot allowed him to fly it for a portion of the flight. He wanted to fly again, but since World War II started soon after, he was unable. Collins studied for two years in the Academia del Perpetuo Socorro in San Juan, Puerto Rico. After the United States entered World War II, the family moved to Washington, D.C., where Collins attended St. Albans School and graduated in 1948. His mother wanted him to enter the diplomatic service, but he decided to follow his father, two uncles, brother and cousin into the armed services. He received an appointment to the United States Military Academy at West Point, from which his father and his older brother had graduated in 1907 and 1939 respectively. He graduated on June 3, 1952, with a Bachelor of Science degree in Military Science, finishing 185th of 527 cadets in the class, which included future fellow astronaut Ed White. Collins began basic flight training in the T-6 Texan at Columbus Air Force Base in Columbus, Mississippi, in August 1952, then moved on to San Marcos Air Force Base in Texas to learn instrument and formation flying, and finally to James Connolly Air Force Base in Waco, Texas, for training in jet aircraft. Flying came easily to him, and unlike many of his colleagues, he had little fear of failure. He was awarded his wings upon completion of the course at Waco, and in September 1953, he was chosen for advanced day fighter training at Nellis Air Force Base, Nevada, flying F-86 Sabres. The training was dangerous. Eleven people were killed in accidents during the 22 weeks he was there. This was followed by an assignment in January 1954 to the 21st Fighter Bomber Wing at George Air Force Base, California, where he learned ground attack and nuclear weapons delivery techniques in the F-86. He moved with the 21st to Chambly-Bussières Air Base, France, in December 1954. He won first prize in a 1956 gunnery competition. During a NATO exercise that year, he was forced to eject from an F-86, near chaumont saint AB, after a fire started aft of the cockpit. Collins met his future wife, Patricia Mary Finnegan from Boston, Massachusetts, in an office's mess. A graduate of Emanuel College, where she majored in English, she was a social worker, dealing mainly with single mothers. To see more of the world, she was working for the Air Force Service Club. After getting engaged, they had to overcome a difference in religion. Collins was nominally Episcopalian, while Finnegan came from a staunchly Roman Catholic family. After seeking permission to marry from Finnegan's father, and delaying their wedding when Collins was redeployed to West Germany during the 1956 Hungarian Revolution, they married in 1957. They had a daughter, actress Kate Collins, in 1959, a second daughter, Anne, in 1961 and a son, Michael, in 1963. After Collins returned to the United States in late 1957, he attended an aircraft maintenance officer course at Chanute Air Force Base, Illinois. 
Upon completing the course, he commanded a mobile training detachment and traveled to airbases around the world. The detachment trained mechanics on the servicing of new aircraft and pilots how to fly them. He later became the first commander of a field training detachment back at Nellis AFB, which was a similar kind of unit, except that the students traveled to him. Having accumulated more than 1,500 flight hours, the minimum necessary to enroll in the U.S. Air Force Experimental Test Pilot School at Edwards Air Force Base, California, he applied there. His application was successful, and on August 29, 1960, he became a member of Class 60C, which included Frank Borman, Jim Irwin and Tom Stafford, who later became astronauts. Military test pilot instruction started with the North American T-28 Trojan, and proceeded through the high-performance F-86 Sabre, B-57 Canberra, T-33 Shooting Star, and the F-104 Starfighter. Collins was a heavy smoker, but quit in 1962 after suffering a particularly bad hangover. The next day, he spent what he described as the worst four hours of his life in the co-pilot's seat of a B-52 Stratofortress while going through the initial stages of nicotine withdrawal. The inspiration for Collins in his decision to become a NASA astronaut was the Mercury Atlas VI flight of John Glenn on February 20, 1962, and the thought of being able to circle the Earth in 90 minutes. Collins applied for the second group of astronauts that year. To raise the numbers of Air Force pilots selected, the Air Force sent their best applicants to a charm school. Medical and psychiatric examinations at Brooks Air Force Base, Texas, and interviews at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston followed. In mid-September, he found out he had not been accepted. It was a blow even though he did not expect to be selected. Collins rated the second group of nine as better than the Mercury 7 who preceded them, or the five groups that followed, including his own. That year the USAF Experimental Flight Test Pilot School became the USAF Aerospace Research Pilot School, as the Air Force tried to enter into space research through the X-15 and X-20 programs. Collins applied for a new postgraduate course offered into the basics of spaceflight. He was accepted into the third class on October 22, 1962. Other students in his 11-member class included three future astronauts, Charles Bassett, Edward Givens and Joe Engel. Along with classwork, they also flew up to about 90,000 feet meters, in F-104 Starfighters. As they passed through the top of their arc, they would experience a brief period of weightlessness. On finishing this course he returned to fighter operations in May 1963. At June, NASA once again called for astronaut applications. Collins went through the same process as with his first application, though he did not take the psychiatric evaluation. He was at Randolph Air Force Base, Texas, on October 14 when Dickie Sladen, the chief of the astronaut office at NASA, called and asked if he was still interested in becoming an astronaut. Bassett was also accepted. By this time Collins had flown over 3,000 hours, of which 2,700 were in jet aircraft. After basic training, the third group were assigned specializations. Collins received his first choice, pressure suits and extravehicular activities. His job was to monitor development and act as a liaison between the astronaut office and contractors. He was disturbed by the secretive planning of Ed White's EVA on Gemini 4, because he was not involved despite being the person with the greatest knowledge of the subject. In late June 1965, Michael Collins received his first crew assignment, the backup pilot for Gemini 7, with his West Point classmate Ed White named as the backup mission commander. Collins was the first of the 14 to receive a crew assignment, but the first to fly was Scott and Gemini 8, and Bassett was assigned to Gemini 9. 
After the successful completion of Gemini 7 on January 24, 1966, Collins was assigned to the prime crew of Gemini 10, but with John Young as mission commander, as White moved on to the Apollo program. Jim Lovell and Buzz Aldrin were designated as the backup commander and pilot respectively. The arrangements were disturbed on February 28 by the deaths of the Gemini 9 crew, Bassett and Elliott C., in the 1966 NASA T-38 crash. They were replaced in Gemini 9 by their backups, Stafford and Gene Cernan. Cernan was the second of the 14 to fly in space. Lovell and Aldrin became their backups, and Alan Bean and C.C. Williams took their place as the Gemini 10 backup crew. Collins would be the 17th American, and third member of his group, to fly in space. Their three-day mission called for them to rendezvous with two Agena target vehicles, undertake two AVAs, and perform 15 different experiments. The training went smoothly, as the crew learned the intricacies of orbital rendezvous, controlling the Agena and, for Collins, the EVA. Gemini 10 lifted off from Launch Complex 19 at Cape Canaveral at 5.20 local time on July 18, 1966. Upon reaching orbit, it was about 860 nautical miles behind the Agena target vehicle, which had been launched 100 minutes earlier. A rendezvous was achieved on Gemini 10's fourth orbit at 10.43, followed by docking at 11.13. The mission plan called for multiple dockings with the Agena target, but an error by Collins in using the sextant caused them to burn valuable propellant, resulting in mission control calling off this objective to conserve propellant. Once docked, the Agena 10 propulsion system was activated to boost the astronauts to a new altitude record, 475 miles above the Earth, breaking the previous record of 295 miles set by Voskhod 2. Shortly after Gemini 10, Michael Collins was assigned to the backup crew for the second crewed Apollo flight, with Borman as commander, Stafford as command module pilot, and Collins as lunar module pilot. Along with learning the new Apollo command and service module in the Apollo lunar module, Collins received helicopter training, as these were thought to be the best way to simulate the landing approach of the lunar module. Collins and Scott were sent by NASA to the Paris Air Show in May 1967. There they met cosmonauts Pavel Belyaev and Konstantin Fyoktistov. Collins found it interesting that some Soviet cosmonauts were doing helicopter training like their American counterparts, and Belyaev said he hoped to make a circumlunar flight soon. During 1968, Collins noticed his legs were not working as they should, first during handball games, then as he walked downstairs. His knee would almost give way, and his left leg had unusual sensations when in hot and cold water. Reluctantly he sought medical advice and the diagnosis was a cervical disc herniation, requiring two vertebrae to be fused. The surgery was performed at Wilford Hall Hospital at Lackland Air Force Base, Texas. The planned recuperation time was three to six months. Collins spent three months in a neck brace. As a result, he was removed from the prime crew of Apollo 9 and his backup, Jim Lovell, replaced him as CMP. When the Apollo 8 mission was changed from a CSM-LM mission in high Earth orbit to a CSM-only flight around the Moon, both prime and backup crews for Apollo 8 and 9 swapped places. The mission patch of Apollo 11 was the creation of Collins. Jim Lovell, the backup commander, mentioned the idea of eagles, a symbol of the United States. Collins liked the idea and found a painting by artist Walter A. Weber in a National Geographic Society book, Water, Prey, and Game Birds of North America, traced it and added the lunar surface below and Earth in the background. The idea of an olive branch, a symbol of peace, came from a computer expert at the simulators. The call sign Columbia came from Julian Shear, 
the NASA Assistant Administrator for Public Affairs. He mentioned the idea to Collins in a conversation and Collins could not think of anything better. An estimated 1 million spectators watched the launch of Apollo 11 from the highways and beaches in the vicinity of the launch site. The launch was televised live in 33 countries, with an estimated 25 million viewers in the United States alone. Millions more listened to radio broadcasts. Propelled by a giant Saturn V rocket, Apollo 11 lifted off from Launch Complex 39A at the Kennedy Space Center on July 16, 1969, at 13.32 Eastern Daylight Saving Time, and entered Earth orbit 12 minutes later. After one and a half orbits, the SIVB third stage engine pushed the spacecraft onto its trajectory toward the Moon. About 30 minutes later, Collins performed the transposition, docking, and extraction maneuver. This involved separating Columbia from the spent SIVB stage, turning around, and docking with the Lunar Module Eagle. After it was extracted, the combined spacecraft headed for the Moon, while the rocket stage flew on a trajectory past it. On July 19 at 17 hours 21 minutes and 50 seconds Coordinated Universal Time, Apollo 11 passed behind the Moon and fired its service propulsion engine to enter lunar orbit. In the 30 orbits that followed, the crew saw passing views of their landing site in the southern Sea of Tranquility about 12 miles southwest of the crater Sabine D at 12 hours 52 minutes and 0 seconds Coordinated Universal Time on July 20, Aldrin and Armstrong entered Eagle and began the final preparations for lunar descent. At 17 hours 44 minutes and 0 seconds Eagle separated from Columbia. Collins, alone aboard Columbia, inspected Eagle as it rotated before him to ensure the craft was not damaged and that the landing gear had correctly deployed before heading for the surface. During his day flying solo around the moon, Michael Collins never felt lonely. Although it has been said, not since Adam has any human known such solitude, Collins felt very much a part of the mission. In his autobiography he wrote, this venture has been structured for three men, and I consider my third to be as necessary as either of the other two. In the 48 minutes of each orbit when he was out of radio contact with the Earth while Columbia passed round the far side of the Moon, the feeling he reported was not fear or loneliness, but rather, awareness, anticipation, satisfaction, confidence, almost exultation. One of Collins' first tasks was to identify the lunar module on the ground. To give Collins an idea where to look, Mission Control radioed that they believed the lunar module landed about four miles off target. Each time he passed over the suspected lunar landing site, he tried in vain to find the lunar module. On his first two orbits on the far side of the moon, Collins performed maintenance activities such as dumping excess water produced by the fuel cells and preparing the cabin for Armstrong and Aldrin to return. Columbia orbited the moon 30 times. Just before he reached the far side on the third orbit, Mission Control informed Collins there was a problem with the temperature of the coolant. If it became too cold, parts of Columbia might freeze. Mission Control advised him to assume manual control and implement Environmental Control System Malfunction Procedure 17. Instead, Collins flicked the switch on the offending system from automatic to manual and back to automatic again, and carried on with normal housekeeping chores, while keeping an eye on the temperature. When Columbia came back around to the near side of the moon again, he was able to report that the problem had been resolved. For the next couple of orbits, he described his time on the far side of the moon as, relaxing. After Aldrin and Armstrong completed their EVA, Collins slept so he could be rested for the rendezvous. While the flight plan called for Eagle to meet up with Columbia, Collins was prepared for certain contingencies in which he would fly Columbia down to meet Eagle. 
At 1754 Coordinated Universal Time on July 21, Eagle lifted off from the Moon to rejoin Collins aboard Columbia in lunar orbit. After rendezvous with Columbia, the ascent stage was jettisoned into lunar orbit, and Columbia made its way back to Earth. Columbia splashed down in the Pacific 1440 NMI east of Wake Island at 1650 Coordinated Universal Time on July 24. The total mission duration was 8 days, 3 hours, 18 minutes, and 35 seconds. Divers passed biological isolation garments to the astronauts, and assisted them into the life raft. Though the chance of bringing back pathogens from the lunar surface was believed to be remote, it was still considered a possibility. The astronauts were winched on board the recovery helicopter, and flown to the aircraft carrier USS Hornet, where they spent the first part of the Earth-based portion of 21 days of quarantine, before moving on to Houston. On August 13, 1969, the three astronauts rode in parades in their honor in New York and Chicago, with about 6 million attendees. On the same evening in Los Angeles there was an official state dinner to celebrate the flight, attended by members of Congress, 44 governors, the Chief Justice of the United States, and ambassadors from 83 nations at the Century Plaza Hotel. In September, the astronauts embarked on a 38-day world tour that brought them to 22 foreign countries and included visits with world leaders. NASA Administrator Thomas O. Payne told Collins that Secretary of State William P. Rogers was interested in appointing Collins to the position of Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs. After the crew returned to the U.S. in November, Collins sat down with Rogers and accepted the position on the urgings of President Nixon. He was an unusual choice for the role, as he was neither a journalist nor a career diplomat. Nor, unlike some of his predecessors, did he act as the department spokesperson. Instead, as the head of the State Department's Bureau of Public Affairs, his role was that of managing relations with the public at large. Michael Collins was appointed to the position on December 15, 1969 and began his work on January 6, 1970. Collins took over at a very difficult time. The Vietnam War was going badly, and the invasion of Cambodia and the Kent State shootings had triggered a wave of protests and unrest across the country. He had no illusions about his ability to change minds, but attempted to engage with the public all the same, playing on his Apollo 11 fame. Collins realized he was not enjoying the job, and secured President Nixon's permission to become the director of the National Air and Space Museum. His departure was officially announced on February 22, 1971. He worked in that role until April 11, 1971. On August 12, 1946, Congress passed an authorization bill for a National Air Museum, to be administered by the Smithsonian Institution, and located on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. under the U.S. legislative system, authorization is insufficient. Congress also has to pass an appropriation bill allocating funding. Since this was not done, there was no money for the museum building. Apollo 11 created another surge of interest in space. An exhibition of a moon rock attracted 200,000 visitors in one month. On May 19, 1970, Senator Barry Goldwater, a retired USAF Major General, gave an impassioned speech in the Senate for funding of a museum building. In addition to cost pressure, there was also severe time pressure, as the museum was scheduled to open on July 4, 1976, as part of celebrations of the upcoming United States Bicentennial. The design was completed in just nine months, and all contracts were awarded within a year of the start of design. Ground was broken on the new museum on November 20, 1972. The building was built horizontally rather than vertically, as is the norm, so that work on the interiors could proceed concurrently. 
Overseeing construction was but a part of Collins' task. He also had to hire museum staff, oversee the creation of exhibits, and launch the museum's Center for Earth and Planetary Studies, a new division devoted to research and analysis of lunar and planetary spacecraft data the museum was completed on budget, and opened three days ahead of schedule on July 1, 1976. President Gerald Ford presided over the formal opening ceremony. Over one million visitors passed through its doors in the first month, and it quickly established itself as one of the world's most popular museums, averaging between 8 and 9 million visitors per annum over the next two decades. Visitors entering saw Columbia in the milestones of Flight Hall, along with the Wright Flyer, the Spirit of St. Louis and Glamorous Glenis. Collins held the directorship until 1978, when he stepped down to become Undersecretary of the Smithsonian Institution. During this time, although no longer an active-duty USAF officer after he joined the State Department in 1970, he remained in the U.S. Air Force Reserve. He attained the rank of Major General in 1976, and retired in 1982. Michael Collins completed the Harvard Business School's Advanced Management Program in 1974, and in 1980 became Vice President of LTV Aerospace in Arlington, Virginia. He resigned in 1985 to start his own consulting firm, Michael Collins Associates. He wrote an autobiography in 1974 entitled Carrying the Fire, An Astronaut's Journeys. Collins has also written Liftoff, The Story of America's Adventure in Space, A History of the American Space Program, Mission to Mars, a nonfiction book on human spaceflight to Mars, and Flying to the Moon and Other Strange Places, revised and re-released as Flying to the Moon, an astronaut's story, a children's book on his experiences. Along with his writing, he has painted watercolors, mostly of the Florida Everglades or aircraft he has flown, they are rarely space-related. He did not initially sign his paintings to avoid them increasing in price just because they had his autograph on them. Collins lived with his wife, Pat, in Marco Island, Florida, and Avon, North Carolina, until her death in April 2014. On April 28, 2021, Michael Collins died from cancer in Naples, Florida at the age of 90. He was sometimes known as the forgotten astronaut because he didn't get to land on the moon, while Armstrong and Aldrin became household names. But his role in the three-man mission in 1969 was just as crucial and his task to keep the module circling and piloting it as his teammates departed from the module in the Eagle Lander and then returned safely, was just as crucial, nerve-wracking and exciting for the mission as a whole. We hope you have enjoyed reading Michael Collins' biography, and we hope it's inspired you to new discoveries. If you liked our video, please like and leave a comment. Also, please subscribe to our channel to always be the first to know about new videos.